Well, it's great to have you in worship, and let me tell you, uh, the elders and staff pulled a fast run on me, and Leslie, we did not see that coming, and uh, so thank you for your prayers for us today. Um, obviously, we're now in th- we've done three of the four services, and uh, last night we were stunned when, when Russ Reimer had the same role that, that Doug had today, Russ had last night, and just counted a privilege to do life with you. Uh, And really, that's our understanding of what it means to lead First Christian Church is not top-down in any way, but instead all of us experiencing the work of Christ together and figuring out as we go. And so there's been a lot of figuring out over the last 20 years, and we count it a privilege to have done it with you. And you've watched us grow and change. You've watched our kids grow and change, and I've watched your kids grow and change, and some of you were already, well, some of you changed more than others. No, it's good stuff, and so thank you for all of that. And uh, kind of in, in many ways, reflective of what we're going to look at today in Scripture, I'd invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. It's uh, the first biography of Jesus' life. And if you don't own a Bible, you'll notice there's a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Please take one of those Bibles and use it. Uh, as a matter of fact, take it as our gift to you. We'd be honored if you would take that Bible with you. You can see some page numbers for those Bibles on the screen behind me today. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, a story about journey. And as we start that, let me tell you about a book that I've read a couple times in recent years. It's a book called Four Souls. Uh, The byline is Four Friends Embark on a Worldwide Odyssey in Search of the Epic Life. Let me tell you about this book as it really sets the stage for what we're going to read in Matthew chapter 2 in just a moment or two. It's a book that details the lives of four young college graduates in their senior year of school together on a, at a college on the West Coast. They decided to, they wanted to see the world after graduation. And rather than step straight in career, into careers or grad school as they had originally suspected they would do, They spent a year in search of what they called the epic life. They wanted to go places where their faith in Christ could make a difference. And so after graduation, they went to these nations. Think about the situation in these nations. Guatemala, a nation that's desperately poor. Russia, a nation in turmoil in many ways or transition. Egypt, a nation in great struggle. South Africa, where there's poverty and affluence side by side. India and Bangladesh. Thailand and Vietnam. They spent time in each nation working with Christians saying, how can we help? How can we get involved in your lives? And uh, they purposely went to places where their journey would take them, where it would be difficult. And if you think about those nations, Guatemala, Russia, Egypt, South Africa, India, Bangladesh, and so on, life for Christians in a lot of those places is indeed difficult. And each night after they would work with people, They'd come back together and they'd do some Bible study together and then they'd also um, have questions that they called honesty sessions. How were they responding to the situations that they were facing together? And this is what they wrote um, as they uh, began and were working their way through this whole year. Grad schools pressed for decisions, job opportunities tugged at our shirt sleeves, but a different idea was also taking shape during that last year of school. The prospect of traveling around the world working with local Christian parts for, a be- for the better part of a year after we graduated. And perhaps we heard the same voice calling us that has beckoned young people throughout the centuries, drawing them to board and explore a ship 
enlist in the cavalry, or join the wagon train heading west. We wanted more than just an adventure, though. We wanted to discover something we called the epic life, the kind of living that would make each day worth waking up for. We desired to see our character grow stronger, our relationships deeper, and our vision more clear. Why would four young guys subject themselves to that kind of journey, to that kind of rigor? Why would they choose to leave security behind all in an effort, they say, so that we could get a better understanding of our spirituality? Would you do it? I think it was a tremendous journey. They learned a lot, and I suspect we understand some of their idea just to expand their world. Because if you think about humans, humans as a whole are on a journey. I mean, we, we understand this metaphor, this picture of journey. Uh, there's a, perhaps you've heard about this. It's a fascinating idea to me that perhaps under different circumstances would be extremely attractive and that there's a, uh, a firm in Holland right now called Mars One and they are looking for applicants who will become astronauts. They've put this out around the world. They want people who, will, who would agree to be um, astronauts to go to Mars. It's a long trip. I think it takes like three and a half months to get there or something like that. And then they're going to settle on Mars. They've had 202,000 people from around the world go through a very, very long application process. And I believe they're whittle, beginning to whittle it down to about 12 to 15 people who are going to go and live in a space about this big on Mars. Uh, there's one caveat. They, scientists know how to get them there and to get enough energy and enough um, jet fuel or whatever to get them there and get them landed on Mars, they have not figured how to get them home. <laughs> true story, true story, true. So if you are chosen as an astronaut, you get on board the ship, Mars One, you go to Mars and you have to agree to be buried on Mars. Would you do it? I bet there's some of you in the room who would go, under the right circumstances, I'd do it. If I was 23 and single and, you know, that, 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 that. I mean, isn't that what people did when they got on ships years ago and said, we're going to sail till we drop off the edge of the earth, a flat earth and all that sort of stuff? There's something within human, the human psyche that says, we'll take on the adventure. I remember at 11 years of age, you've heard me tell this story before about this, we were gathered on that dock at Sydney, Australia, and leaving family behind. And in the 60s, there was a sense as we were standing there, and I don't think I remember that. I, I, I re re realized it or recognized it as 11 years old that all the adults were weeping and crying. And I'm thinking, well, is this a big adventure? And I, in retrospect, realized that for my grandparents and aunts and uncles, for them, they thought this would probably be the last time we see these kids. The, the honest truth, for many of them it was. It was 43 years from the time I saw my grandparents to when I saw the family again. And by that time, my grand, all four of my grandparents had passed away. Because we had, you know, I have 70 first cousins, big family on both sides. And they were, they were, um, you know, we were, I was 11. I had some who were older than me, were teenagers. A couple of them were married in their early 20s, a number of them younger than me. And so I remember them all as very young people. I mean, 43 years later, when you meet these people, some of them are retired. You know, it's, the world changed for them and for me in that period of time. So I, we, our family took that journey as a little boy. I remember that. 
And um, I think we all understand it. You'd go, well, I'm not going to Mars. No, you're not going to Mars. But if somebody said, hey, I gotta, I gotta drive a truck to California. It's gonna take two weeks. Do you wanna go with me? If you had the time off, you'd go. Yeah, I'm up for the journey. I mean, some of us would do that, right? Well, we're gonna look at two guys. Well, I say two. I don't know how many guys, actually. Some people in, in Matthew 2 who took on a journey. Read with me Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, this is when we do the Christmas story, the wise men, okay, the wise men, we three kings of Orient are those guys, all right? The Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, let me just say, obviously, we can see even here after Jesus is born, we don't know when they showed up, as a matter of fact. We always bring them into the story at Christmas that they showed, but we don't have any understanding that really they were at the manger scene. There's nothing in scripture that points us to that. But we've got our three kings over here. We don't know if there were three. The reason we say three, or the folklore says three, is because they brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They each carry a gift. We, there may have been 20 of them. There might have only been two. We don't know, all right? But we do know that some wise guys from the east came to see Jesus. And we suspect really it's probably, scholars think it might have been even 18 to 24 months after Jesus was born. Here's why. King Herod is, in, is, is on the throne and he has no idea who these guys are. They show up saying, we know that a king has been born. And he goes, well, I haven't had any little boys been born in my palace and, and he'll, he'll ask, when did all this happen? And consequently, he's quite jealous and he doesn't want this king to come and take over his family's role in the, in the nation. So he orders that every male child under the age of two be slaughtered. That's part of the story that often we don't read at Christmas. But all the boys in Israel under the age of two were slaughtered at this moment. And so we would say then, well, perhaps Jesus might have been as old as two years old at this point. We don't know. We would look at this story post-Christmas usually, but it could have been 18 to 24 months after. Does that make sense? Based on the fact that, G that Herod says, hey, I'm going to eliminate this guy, this little boy, whoever he is. Let's get rid of everybody two years old and, and younger. So it could be 18 months later, 19. We don't know, all right? But they come to Herod and they say, we're going to arrive at the palace. We, want to, we suspect there's been a king born here at the palace. Can we worship him? Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. He didn't know that anybody had been born. He says, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them, see, he's asking, so when was it this star appeared? And they've said, told him something or other, maybe two years ago, wipe out all the boys two years old. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. He's lying through his teeth. He wants, he wants to kill Jesus. But that's what he says. I want to go and worship him. Not true. He just wants to know where the baby is. But nonetheless, after they had heard the king, 
They went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures, presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, I suspect, friends, that you have heard this story before. I mean, we have them in plays at Christmas time. We address, you know, these th- three guys, always choose three, again, because of the three gifts. And, you know, and, they, and we sing, we three kings of Orient are from the East, the Orient. And it's, you, you know the story. But I want to, in light of the story, can I point out some observations to you that as I think about this and, and ponder what it must have been like for these guys to travel, some, some truths that we can discover from this story. First of all, these guys are coming from the east, apparently a long way away, and they're coming to see Jesus. It's quite plain to me that if you want to come to see Jesus, you got to do some journeying. It may not mean that you got to leave your house, per se, but you've got to do some journeying emotionally and spiritually and intellectually. And these wise guys, can we call them those guys? I like that, isn't it? These wise guys, they come from the east to find the baby in Bethlehem. And it's a journey, when you think about it, they've, some time before arriving, they got together and they said, a star showed up, let's get the camels together, let's get our entourage together, let's get some gifts together, and we're going to start journeying. And it costs time, it costs energy, it costs money, it costs resources. We don't know how far they traveled, but they're from the east. As I watch people discover Jesus Christ, you know, throughout all of my ministry and see, as we've worked together to see people come to know Christ, it's been quite plain that for them to come to know Christ, it takes a journey. And it may not be a journey that involves physical miles, but it does involve movement. And a Christian life is a life that is based on movement. In other words, you don't get to be still. The call of God on our lives doesn't conclude at the moment we come to faith. You know, we're walking along through life, we're passing through life, doing this intellectual transition, if you will, this spiritual transition to come, okay, maybe Jesus really is the Son of God. And then we step over the line of faith, we say he is the Son of God. That journey doesn't stop right there. Maybe you're on the journey toward coming to the place where you say Jesus is the Son of God. Keep pushing through. Keep getting on that journey. But if you've crossed the line of faith, you don't get to stop there either. Being a follower of Jesus Christ means that you should move, that you should change, that you should grow. And following means that you have to leave some things or some places behind. There are attitudes that you've got to decide to leave behind. Walking with Christ means that if somebody's angry with you, then maybe you're not going to be angry with them. You're going to do things differently. If someone's rude to you, doesn't mean that you get to be rude back. Before you cross the line of faith, maybe you get to. But once you cross the line of faith, you say, God's now in charge of my life and he is transforming me. The Apostle Paul says to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think differently after you cross over the line of faith. And so as you think differently, you say, I'm going to respond to situations differently. It might, it might mean even leaving some places behind. Yeah, this is what you know, Doug alluded to when he was up here a few minutes ago. Our family has faced this in some interesting ways in the last few months. As many of you know, Leslie's mother had a really bad fall 
in September. And it became very apparent within a number of days the only way that we could care for her effectively since she had to be non-weight-bearing for three months. Think about that. The only way in which we could effectively do that was for Les to go out and live in North Carolina for three months. And then once we'd made that decision three or four days after, the, uh, after she fell, Dad said, uh, we've decided that this is the trigger point where we have to move to Decatur. So Les has been out there for three months, and there were some days when that wasn't really pretty, to be honest, particularly for me. No. <laughs> particularly for Leslie and, and, and mom and dad. And, and, you know, 10 days ago, we moved them to Decatur. And they had to say goodbye. Part of their journey in life right now is on the 19th of December, they said goodbye to friends. That they've lived there in High Point, North Carolina for 57 years. That, and and I, I'm, I marvel, frankly, at the courage. Two people in their 80s, when you say in your 80s, you shouldn't have to make these big decisions. It should be easy from now on. In fact, I'm learning as I watch, the older it is, the older people become, the more courageous the decisions have to be. And they've made this big, courageous decision that says, we'll move. We get it. We have to have help now. And we'll make the, and so they're here in Decatur, and uh, I look forward to you meeting them. They're still getting settled down at Imboden, and you know we'll get them up here in, in worship with us in the days ahead. But my point is, if you're going to walk with Christ, you're, there are some things and some situations, some attitudes that you have to leave behind, and it, it means a journey. And I know at times it's scary, but there's some good news if you walk with Christ. You're never alone. You know Jesus um, as as he was going to heaven, he'd had his life, he had, had died and resurrected, and he's hanging out with his disciples post-resurrection for a few days, a couple of weeks, and he comes to the, to the time when he's going to go to heaven, and he said to his, to his disciples, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In this little safe place, Jerusalem, to the place that's not quite so safe, to the place that isn't safe, and then to the big world. You're going to be my witnesses. And, and then he goes to heaven, but right before he goes, he says, but I want you to remember this. I am with you wherever you go to the very end of the age. Here's a promise that even as you journey out from what is the safe place to the places where I'm calling you to go, be mindful of this. I'm with you. You know, the sages, when they came from the east, and they came hoping to find some king. And then you've got this promise that from, from, from the prophet that's some 600 years old that we read, where it says, well, the, the prophet said there was going to be a Messiah born in, in Bethlehem. And that promise of God became true. The things that God says remain true as we journey. The disciples discovered as they journeyed, that truth that Jesus would be with them always through his Holy Spirit became true. The sages, as they came and 600 years beforehand, the prophet had said, go to Bethlehem, you'll see the Messiah. And who did they get to see? They saw the Son of God. I like this idea that as we journey, if we journey with Christ, then God's with us, even when we don't understand it. And there's a great story uh, in this regard in the book of Genesis. Read it with me here in Genesis chapter 11. It's going to be on the screen behind me. It's the story of um, Abraham's family. But at first glance, you don't understand that because it's, you think it's just a lineage story and you go, oh, all these names. But see if you can read between the lines with me today. 
Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. And while his father Terah was still alive, Haran died, died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcar. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. And you go, well, it's just lineage stuff. But you know what? There's some really interesting comments that we could make about that story and about the promises of God. See if I can point it out to you here. Terah is a man living in Ur the Chaldeans, which is far east, probably over by Iran, to that what we would call modern-day Iran, if not further east. Man, he's got three sons, and after the boys grow and get married, grow up and get married, Terah says, "Hey, let's take on a family adventure. I think it's cool living here in the Ur Chaldeans, but I, I hear that if we were to go over to Canaan, it'd be really, really cool. Let's go." Well, before they begin the journey, one of the sons dies. Another one says, mm, I'm not gonna, I don't want to go. I like it here in Ur. And so the rest of them, though, say, we're going to leave. And they begin a journey to what we would call modern-day Israel, to a place called Canaan. And so as they're traveling, apparently, they stop for a period of time in a place called Haran. And Terah liked it so much in Haran that he decided to stay there permanently, and he chose not to travel on to Canaan. It was only after his death that his son Abram left Haran and traveled further into Canaan. And it was Abram, because he got to Canaan, it was Abram who became Abraham, who then became the father of the Jews. It was Abram who received a special relationship with God that no one had ever experienced before. He became the father of a nation, Israel. He became the father of a religion called Judaism, really the bedrock of what Christianity is all about. And I wonder about all that Abram experienced. He got to Canaan and God said, I want you to look, 190 says, look up at all the stars. He looks up at all the stars and God says to Abraham, you walk with me and your family is going to grow so large that you, you can't even count them. Like, like it's going to be as numerous as the stars. Can you count the stars? No, I can't count the stars, God. Then my promise to you is that you, blessings are going to flow on your family so much that your family, your, your nation, the nation coming from you, Israel, is going to have a special relationship with me. And there's going to be so many, you can't even count them. And you know what happened? Abram trusted God. He trusted God in that journey. And could you count the number of people who are Jewish today? No. But I wonder about this. Terah settled in Haran. I don't know if he would have been the father of the Jews if he'd gone all the way to Canaan. I don't know if he'd been the one that God would have said, look up at all the stars. But I do know this much. When he settled in the land of Haran, he settled for second best. The plan had been to go to Canaan, and he chose to stop halfway there. And it's plain to me that Abram went, and he got all the promises of God because Terah settled for second best. Friend, never settle for the land of second best. Never settle for stopping the race halfway through. 
Some of you are sitting in pews today and you're going, there's something down inside my gut that God's been dealing with me about. Something that God's been pointing to me at, pointing out to me about my life or about something I'm supposed to step into or a new job or a new house or a new way that I'm to relate to the family, whatever. You, and it's deep down inside your gut today and you're afraid. You're afraid of taking it on. Don't stop in the land of second best. Don't settle for the land of second best because you'll miss the full blessings that God has planned for you as an individual. Journey all the way to Canaan. Get there. Is it easy? No, nobody said it'd be easy. These guys from the, from the east, the three wise guys, or however many they were, it cost them time, money, and effort. There was a sacrifice involved, but they got there. I, I think it's the same for our congregation in this regard. As the pastor, as your pastor, I'm always aware that part of my responsibility in our church is to call our congregation to journey. The great moments of 2013 don't make necessarily for great moments of 2014. We must always be willing to strive to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit for new endeavors, for new ministries. We can't rest on the accomplishments of last year, expecting that they're going to be just great again next year, regardless of how great last year was. And just to put in a plug, I do hope you'll be with us next weekend because I do want to brief you on what I think have been some of the highlights of 2013, but also what I see coming down the pike for us in 2014. Um, two kind of hints of where some really cool things. One is we're going to do some major things to our building in the coming year, we believe. We want to kind of lay that out for you. And uh, it's going to be important that you be aware of that. And then just something else that I, I really do want to, frankly, I want to just tease you with this. You ready? Probably one of the most stunning ministry developments came our way in the last few months that launches January 1, and you don't even know it's coming, and I'll tell you about it next week. How's that? I, I'm serious. In all my wildest dreams, something has come our way that I would never have dreamt of, and I'll tell you about it next week. It is unbelievably stunning that has an impact upon this community called Decatur in ways that we would have never, ever dreamt. And uh, I'll tell you about tell you next week. That's not fair to me even do that, is it? But I'm the one preaching and you're not. <laughs> you know, here's here's what I understand as a, as as a congregation that if we walk with God, his promises are going to be there. Abram discovered that. These guys from the east, they say, we're going to go, and they learn there's a promise that there's a baby in Bethlehem. They get to see that baby. But I'm quite aware that probably as they're making their way east, they didn't fully understand everything that was taking place. I mean, when, when we're journeying with Christ, he gets to see the big picture, but for us, we don't get to see it all. And so sometimes we don't always understand it. Let me explain it this way. In 1937, Walt Disney came up with a crazy idea. Let's take my black and white, short, three-minute-long cartoons. Let's do them in full color and make a full-length movie, an animated movie. And the first animated movie was made. Do you remember what it was called? 1937, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. First time this had ever been done to a full-length color cartoon, if you will. 
an animated movie. In order to do that, though, he had to have artists who were going to draw over, catch this, one million colored pictures. Because every picture they drew was going to only be seen on the screen for one twenty-fourth of a second. Like if you were to have Snow, War, Snow White move her arm like this, how long does that take? 24 seconds? I mean, that takes a second, right? Maybe? One? 24 different pictures, drawings, whatever you want to call them, had to be drawn on, on slick, see-through film. 24 of them. Now, in the midst of those, can you imagine, imagine being this? You're an artist in, in Hollywood in 1936, and some guy you've never heard of by the name of Walt Disney calls you up, man, have I got a great opportunity for you. You get to draw a million pictures in the next year. Or we're going to ask you to take care of the bad apple. You're going to draw pictures of a bad apple. You're going to draw about 10,000 of them in a year. Do you think you're up for it? And you know what? At the end of a year, you'd be sick and tired of that bad apple, wouldn't you? You'd be sick and tired of it. But when you see your 124th of every second come into full play over a full-length movie, what do you have? You have the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Our lives are like that movie. God puts infinite skill, thought, and careful attention into every detail, into every movement of our lives. And I'm quite convinced that the minutia, minutia of our lives is actually smaller than each one twenty-fourth of a second. But if I'm a person of faith, I'm believing that God is orchestrating the movement of my arm. Yeah, I'm doing it, but as I move my arm, God's orchestrating all the things around it so it all comes into play. And that if I could only get God's perspective, I'd have to say, man, God's ways are not like my ways because I get focused in on one minute or even one small snippet of a second. Man, why did that happen? And I get stuck there. When if I could see the big picture, it'd look a whole lot different. Honey. to his problem. 
You know, guys, I, um, I think about those wise men coming across the east, from the east, and they're coming across that road, and oof, there had to be some ugly moments along the way. Don't you imagine? If it was far enough, they might have lost a camel or two. There had to be some nights when the hotels didn't really, sh- I mean, there were cockroaches in the hotels, you know what I mean, those kind of things. And uh, yet they went on their journey. And I'm quite clear about this. They get to Herod's courtyard and they go, we want to see the king. And there's no king. How disappointing would that have been? And they learn, instead of being in a great palace, this baby that's been born is actually in a very, very humble abode. And there had to be some moments where they're going... This just does not make sense. It did, this is not what we expected. But then on the other hand, they look at the star, and they, what does the scripture say? It says they were overjoyed to see the baby. Something happened in their lives that you have to read between the lines to understand. They're from the east. People in the east worshipped many, many gods. That was not the characteristic of Judaism. Judaism was this, had this characteristic. There was only one God. And yet they get there and they get, instead of worshiping gods of stone and wood, what do they do? They get to see the baby Jesus and it says they worshiped him. This is how it's put in Matthew chapter two. If you go to that screen for us, please, Barb. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose. And what have they come to do? They've come to worship him. And that's exactly what happened. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshiped him. They give their treasures and everything. But their whole world has changed. No longer are they worshiping dead 
idols made of stone and wood, but now they see God in the flesh, a live, true, living God. Dramatic shift for them. And I would ask you, are you journeying with Christ? And if so, if you're making that journey from non-belief to crossing the line of belief to stepping into full walking with God, then be a person of worship. Be a person who says, hey, all I have is, is yours, God. My gold, my frankincense, my myrrh, everything I have, not just my pocketbook, but in every way that I live my life, I will worship you. I will follow you. I'll make the movie. I'll, I'll, I'll draw the painting for the next 24th of a second. You work it through me. You know these young guys that went on that trip in that book? This is what one of them said. Trials test character. In an extended difficult situation, you find how, how long you can last on nothing but your deepest beliefs. And if you make it through, you come out stronger and ready for more. I hunger to be sharpened into a man who can be used by God. And this trip around the world is doing just that. I know it has involved some trials, but I'm willing to accept those for the benefit that I see. If it can lead me to be the kind of man who has a meaningful and purposeful life then that's what I hope to live. If that's the case, it's worth everything I can put into it. In 2014, step into all that God's got for you. Yeah, there are issues in 2013 that may not have been so cool and so grand. Look at them through the lens of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. See what God will do in us and through us this coming year. Let's pray together. Father, there's lots of people in this room, God, with... As many stories as there are people. Work in all of our lives, God. Enable us to come to the place where we worship you with all that we have, with everything that we belong to, everything that belongs to us. These guys came from a long way off and they came and said, we will worship. That's what we want to do, God. And we want to do it wholeheartedly throughout 2014. We'll take the journey. We don't know all the, the end results of all that journey. We may be looking for a king in a palace, and yet, in reality, we're going to find a king in a humble abode. Nonetheless, we're going to find you in, the, in all of it, God, and we're going to worship you with everything we have. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen.